Hello, world. We are back on Revolutionary Health Live. I am your host, Michael Ward. I am so very excited that you are joining us tonight. Make sure that you like, subscribe, follow, share this video. Um, we are at CNP Tribe, as is below on the video. Um, tonight, we are going to have a very important conversation about HIV criminalization. Um, we're updating um, our roundtable from last year. So make sure that you check that out as well on CNP TV. I believe the link just came in there. Um, so you can watch 2020's roundtable, but we are back again here for 2021. And I'm so excited to have this conversation. Um, it's very necessary and very needed. And I will be joined by some very, very um, great guests that know so much about this topic. So I am so excited to share this information with you all. Um, again, we are live, so we wanna hear from you, drop questions comments, anything in the chat so we can try to incorporate your thoughts and your questions as much as possible um, while you're here. So make use of it. Um, so let's bring in the guests that we have for tonight. I will allow you all, hey, there we are. I will allow you all to introduce yourselves, any affiliations that you have and your preferred pronouns. So that way we know how to address you. Who wants to kick it off for us? Do I have to call you by your name? <laughs> I'll just, I, I, <laughs> you go, Robert. <laughs> uh, good evening, or good afternoon. Good evening, everyone. My name is Robert Suttle. Um, I am an advocate that's been involved in this issue for about 10 years now. Um, I know so much about it because it is an experience that I've had uh, myself. And so I've pretty much dedicated the past 10 years of my life, yes, 10 years, of really uh, doing advocacy, bringing awareness to this issue. Uh, you can also see me doing work with the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation. I am the current chair of the Council of Justice Leaders for their national HIV is not a crime campaign. Also, if you're connected to the international world, I am a global advisory member, uh, global advisory panel member for the HIV Justice Network, which is people who do a lot of HIV decriminalization work all over the world. And also to many, I am a uh, founding member of the CIRO project for those that are familiar with CIRO's work. So I am glad to be here amongst this uh, group of people because I've been able to work with them in different capacities just over the years. And so I look forward to uh, your questions or any comments that you have in the discussion today. So thank you. And um, hi everyone, I'm Brad Sears. I'm the founding executive director of the Williams Institute, uh, which is a research center on LGBT law and policy issues uh, at UCLA School of Law. Um, uh, as we'll talk about in a bit, we've done a lot of research on um, who these laws, who these laws that criminalize people with HIV actually impact. Um, but I really come at this work um, as a person uh, living with HIV who had an AIDS diagnosis uh, in, in the, in the mid nineties, um, and who lived in a state that enacted one of these laws just, uh, just a few years after I became positive. So I too have been working, uh, either under these laws or working against them for quite a while. Hey everybody. Uh, my name is Amir Sadeki. I'm, uh, I use he, him pronouns. I'm the national policy and partner strategist with the center for HIV law and policy or CHLP. Um, we're a national legal and policy strategy center um, and resource for people living with HIV, working to challenge barriers that discriminate against people living with HIV. And um, a lot of that work translates into fighting against these laws that irrationally criminalize people living with HIV. Um, you know, we're one of the founders of the Positive Justice Project, or PJP. Um, it's the first national collaborative of organizations and people living with HIV and legal experts and health professionals working to end the criminalization of people living with HIV in the United States. Um, we've uh, successfully worked with advocates on the state level to change some of these um, discriminatory laws and um, are also right now coordinating a national prosecutors roundtable to educate and bring prosecutors up to speed on, on these statutes. So it's great to be here, everybody. Yes, and I'm so excited to speak with you all tonight as well, I'm here. And I love that people are already dropping um, greetings and everything in the chat, so definitely keep that up. But I want to start with you um, as well, Amir. 
for people who may not know or new or this is their first time hearing about HIV criminalization, can you just give us an overview of exactly what does it mean when we say HIV criminalization? Absolutely. Thank you, Michael. Um, for those who don't know, um, HIV criminalization is simply uh, the arrest, prosecution, uh, and imprisonment of people living with HIV for things that are either perfectly legal if you're not living with the virus or are minor offenses that might not be typically enforced. Uh, so um, basically it's applying the criminal law in any way, any criminal law in a way where someone's HIV status or someone's health status as a person living with HIV is a necessary component of the offense. So that can take the form of an HIV specific criminal law that a state, a state might have that criminalizes someone for not disclosing their status prior to maybe sexual contact or another kind of exposure, even if that kind of exposure could not even scientifically result in an HIV transmission. Um, or these uh, HIV crimes can also be sentence enhancements, which bump up the penalty level from a misdemeanor to a felony simply just because a person's living with HIV. Uh, a pretty good example of that is um, statutes that criminalize sex work, you know, solicitation uh, laws typically are misdemeanors in states. Uh, but if you're living with HIV, it's automatically a felony. Um, even if you're a sex worker who uh, is virally suppressed and could not even sexually transmit HIV, even if you're a sex worker who used a condom or another kind of prophylactic device to prevent HIV transmission, uh, or even if you're a sex worker who's, who's you know, doing things that could not even scientifically or theoretically resulted in HIV transmission, simply because you're living with HIV, uh, you're subjected to this kind of severe um, uh, uh, discriminatory felony law. Uh, currently, uh, because this year actually we saw so many repeals and reforms to HIV criminal laws, we're still working on analyzing uh, and, and correctly um, and accurately tabulating how many statutes there are now, because there's thankfully been some, some activity in this area this year. But there are about 30 states that have either an HIV-specific criminal law or a sentence enhancement that affects people living with HIV. Um, six states, actually, uh, you may have to register as a sex offender after you've been convicted under one of these really awful irrational laws, um, which obviously will have uh, lifelong implications on your access to housing and employment, um, uh, education and services. And really, we're talking about uh, people who have consensual sex, people who are living with HIV having consensual sex, possibly ending up on a sex offender registry. Um, also, there are 25 states from which we know that have criminalized people living with HIV with general crimes. Um, the general criminal code, things like uh, reckless endangerment, aggravated assault, assault with a deadly weapon, the deadly weapon being the bodily fluids of people living with HIV, um, or we've even seen prosecutions uh, up to attempted murder in Michigan. We're aware of a prosecution under the state's bioterrorism laws. All this is to say it's, it's not just HIV-specific laws. There are also... Uh, the, the, the issue of, of states that criminalize people living with HIV with these general crimes and prosecutors have typically described the bodily fluids of people living, living with HIV as deadly weapons, even if those bodily fluids could not have even scientifically or theoretically posed a risk of transmission. Yes, definitely. Thank you for that. And as well, there is a link in the chat. Um, too, where we dropped information on HIV laws that are specific to your state. So definitely uh, make sure you check those out and know um, definitely what the what the law is in your state. Um, because I always tell the story of when I was diagnosed with HIV, I, I didn't know that I was signing a paper basically saying that I understand my HIV diagnosis and it is my responsibility, um, of course, to inform any sexual partners or else I may face HIV criminalization laws. So I think it's very important um, for you all to check that link out um, as well that we've dropped in the chat. So definitely, definitely thank you for that as well.
Um, I wanted to move uh, to you, uh, Robert, um, specifically when it comes to HIV criminalization. Um, I know LGBT or uh, Black LGBT, uh, the community as well, is affected. Um, and we are on Revolutionary Health to show that, you know, is for Black gay men's health and wellness. So I just want to ask you, how um, is the Black LGBT community disproportionately affected by these laws? Oh, thank you for the question, Michael. Um, gosh, where do I begin with this? Um, first of all, I would just say, you know, according to the CDC, you know, the MS men who have sex with men or black uh, gay men or bisexual men, um, one in two black or African-American men or one in four Latino uh, gay and bisexual men or same gender loving men may be diagnosed with HIV in their lifetime. And I don't know about you, but that's those numbers, those statistics scare me. You know, especially when as understanding how HIV is distributed, these criminalization laws are distributed across the country. And of course, how HIV criminalization looks different in different parts of the country. This, the fact that one in two African-American or black men can be diagnosed with HIV is scary, particularly in the South, um, knowing that the epidemic is so prevalent there. And then also looking at the fact that uh, the imprisonment, the rate of imprisonment, um, I have the numbers here for black men is one in three black men will be uh, facing imprisonment in their lifetime and one in six for Latin X men. So when you put those two together, it creates the perfect storm, or as I say, another way for, for black people to be uh, convicted and criminalized. And so um, there's other issues that are at play here. These laws do not look at, look at the fact of how um, black, for black gay men or LGBT people communicate or how we interact with each other, especially when it comes to our sexual uh, relationships. Uh, the laws does not take into consideration um, how we live our lives. And so therefore, as Black gay people, we will find ourselves uh, perpetuating a lot of these laws uh, because we, one, we may feel some kind of way if someone doesn't tell us that or disclose to us about their HIV status. Um, but at the same time, we will also turn around and have that other person arrested and eventually criminalized. And so I say this to say that, you know, the, the law does not do a, a lot to help our our community. In fact, it, it criminalizes and further oppresses us. Um, not a lot. Is, some things are being done to help us pre have HIV prevention, but nothing's being done to improve uh, or to eradicate the criminalization of people living with HIV, especially <clears throat> uh, when we know that uh, that HIV, that people living with HIV are not intentionally, purposely, maliciously going around to infect other people. And so um, there's a lot there to be learned for a person that's living with HIV. Uh, the LGBT community is already surveillance and police enough. I think there's a William Institute um, data uh, report from 2015 that note that LGBT people are still impacted by um, police surveillance and and I also have some other points here that when it comes to um, the health system, there's a distrust there. Uh, there's also legal vulnerabilities based on the HIV status. Um, these laws are outdated. And so therefore people are subjected to the draconian laws that, that do not reflect the science today. And so, as I said earlier, they do not, these laws don't take consideration um, how we live our lives. And so it pretty much is cut and dry. If you are a person that, is that is accused of not disclosing their HIV status to someone, and you're in fact living with HIV, it is possible that you could uh, face a uh, conviction. And so um, there's also disenfranchisement. And in the end, there's the collateral consequences uh, that infect people's access to employment, housing, education, and other benefits or opportunities. And I know that we talk about the fact, or has been said that HIV is a death sentence. Well, today it's a prison sentence, but I also want to add to that, that conviction, the conviction, the felony conviction becomes a life sentence. And so um, just something to, to think about there. But with the advancements in treatment and, and science, um, there are ways that now that people can, uh, who are not HIV positive, can um, prevent themselves from becoming positive by interacting with the other alternatives that are available. And so I also wanted to say that it's important that um, Black LGBT individuals continue to have conversations with each other. We need to talk about um, HIV. We need to talk about how that relates to our relationships um, because the law, as I said, it does not take into consideration um, perhaps who's 
at fault, whether it's both parties, but if that person is living with HIV, that person, the onus of responsibility is on that person. Mm. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Definitely appreciate that. And as he said, make sure that you share this video, this conversation. Um, you continue this outside of the roundtable um, as we as we continue this. Um, but let me bring you in as well here, Brad. You look a little lonely, so I want to make sure that we include you in the conversation. Um, as he pointed out as well, too, with the Williams Institute, um, that it's done a great deal of evaluation about HIV criminalization um, in states like Florida, uh, where I moved from into Georgia and uh, Missouri, among other states. Uh, so can you chat just a little bit about uh, what the findings show for black people and other people of color? Um, just a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And I and I I think it really. So what we do is look at the data from each state about who's actually been arrested and convicted for these crimes. And I think it really when we do that, we see exactly what Robert is talking about, is that these laws are written in terms of behaviors um, that Amir described when he described the law, described the laws like having sex or spitting or biting that are presumed often inaccurately to be able to transmit um, HIV. But I think what Robert really pointed out is this is not about behaviors. It's not about preventing HIV. This is about systems that were already in place. And this is a tool in those systems um, that have allowed through public health uh, the epidemic to disproportionately impact um, LGBTQ people and people of color and a criminal justice system that, again, disproportionately impacts LGBTQ people, people of color, and in particular, LGBTQ people of color. And so these laws, uh, that's how they function. And so what we see is uh, in every state we've looked at, whether it's Florida, Georgia, California, Missouri, we just got data from Ohio and Virginia, hundreds and hundreds of people being arrested by these laws. It's not a, it's not a few dozen, it's, it's hundreds. And um, um, for the most part, it's black people and more specific, it's for the most part, it's black people um, and people of color. What the data really shows is black people who are being disproportionately um, impacted by these laws. And um, our data shows that on almost 100% of the cases, there's no proof that, act, that anyone's ever been infected. There's no proof of intent. And in over 90 to 95% of the cases, there's not even conduct alleged that can transmit the virus. So, so when, this, when I'm saying this is not about behavior, this is not about public health, it does not be about behavior or, or public health or preventing HIV. And I wanna, I wanna drill down on that by going to Missouri. Um, and so in Missouri, where I'm from, um, about five and a half percent of the population is black men. Um, if you go to people living with HIV, 35% are black men. If you go to people who've been arrested for an HIV crime, 50% are black men, another big jump. So you, you, you go to people convicted, you're up to 55%. So if you have, um, if, if you have a country that allows a public health crisis to disproportionately impact um, black people, if you have a criminal justice system that is designed to disproportionately impact black people and you make a crime out of having that health condition, this is what you see. You see this exactly in Missouri. What does that mean in Missouri? That one out of 43 black men in Missouri with HIV have been arrested for an HIV crime. It's a, it's a, it, it is uh, the state with about the highest level of enforcement in any states. But here's what I mean when this is a system, this is operating in a system that's about incarceration and not about health. Um, the, the area of Missouri that is responsible for most of the convictions under these crimes is St. Louis. So it's, it's not in Kansas City. They're not, they're, there are arrests, but not as much. It's concentrated by, in St. Louis. And if you look at the law enforcement agency, it's the St. Louis Police Department. So if this was about health, you would expect to see it kind of evenly distributed. This is about the St. Louis Police Department. Who are they arresting for these crimes? Well kind of nine out of the last, last 11 people have been, who've been convicted for an HIV crime in the St. Louis area are black men who have one charge at arrest, which is only resisting arrest. There's no sex involved, no needle sharing. They're charged with a resisting arrest, which is uh, kind of a lower level felony. The prosecutors find out that they're HIV positive. They get rid of that charge and switch it to the old 1980s, 1990s laws about HIV transmission because they know now the defendant is HIV positive. The sentence triples, becomes five, 10, 15 years instead of two, four, or eight. Um, 
And what happens in the criminal justice system? Most people plead and facing the larger system, they're definitely going to plead uh, with that. And so this is a pattern of the St. Louis Police Department. And, um, you know, it's it's a law enforcement officer against the person on the street about what resisting arrest look like. They find out a person's HIV positive and then they can get them to plead to that crime or, or basically anything else because of the sentence. So when we say this isn't about behaviors, it's not about public health, it's about a system. I can't think of a clearer example uh, of that. And, and Amir mentioned we have these prosecutor roundtables that CHLP does. Prosecutors will say this. We like these crimes because they have high sentences. And once we know their HIV person's HIV positive, we can get them to plead to all sorts of things. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. I mean, one in 43. And as you said, once once we know somebody is HIV positive, we can get them to plead to any to any crime. It's Yes, it's it's just unbelievable. Um, when you put it that way with the numbers. Um, so one of the one of the things as well that I'm curious about is there are um, you wonderful folks that are working to change these laws and advocating for people who are, you know, incarcerated. Um, what have we learned um, from states that may have modernized these laws? How do we um, impact change with these laws? And I'll open this up to anyone who wants to take it. Um, but what are some of those ways that, um, as you said, these are draconian laws and older laws, how can we modernize those to take into account now that we do have um, a medicine that allows people like me to live longer um, and prep, you know, and we're having these conversations um, and there's more knowledge. What, what can we learn about that? Well, you know, Michael, I think one of the important things that we might want to foreground in this discussion is that from the states that have either repealed or reformed their HIV criminal laws, it's important to remember that what we're learning is you kind of get one shot at this. Because states, for example, like Iowa, that uh, has actually been used as an example, I've heard anecdotally, from state health departments in southern US states who are becoming interested uh, in changing these laws are using the Iowa reform as an example. Uh, we've, we've been able to, to track at least 15 cases since the uh, change in the law in Iowa where HIV criminal charges have been filed and it has resulted in seven convictions. Um, one sentence uh, was as high as 80 years for an individual in 2017, 80-year sentence. Some, some of those years are, you know, are also um, for, for other offenses from this individual, but we also know that someone just last year was sentenced to 26 years because in the Iowa reform, they did change the law to to make the threshold for prosecution a little bit higher by requiring that someone need to act with an intent to transmit HIV, which is an important thing to advocate for. And I can dig into that a little bit more when we talk about, you know, the important principles for reform. But in Iowa, they did keep a possible 25-year felony uh, sentence on the books. And, you know, I think to, to, to add to what Robert said, a felony conviction becomes a life sentence. It stays with you for life. It affects your eligibility to vote in most states. And actually, I think in Iowa, it's one of the states with the most restrictive uh, uh, disenfranchisement provisions in, in state law. Uh, so you have a state where it's still a, a felony crime to be living with HIV and engage in certain kinds of conduct. Um, and it's translated to a situation where we're continuing to see the enforcement of this law all the way up to last year, at least. Um, so I think it's important to, to, to take note that you, you know, despite maybe what, what some, you know, especially national organizations who have an interest in passing a law and um, cheering about it and then leaving the state and leaving people in that state to be, to, you know, live with the consequences of that change even if it's built on a strategy that has left some people behind or has kept things that are continuing to punish people irrationally. Uh, we, I think it's important to, to, to unpack that you, you get one shot at this and it's important to make sure we do it right. Because 
Unfortunately, this year, there has been a lot of exciting momentum in changing these laws, because as Brad and, and, and Robert said, this is not about actually deterring risky behavior. Law enforcement has no interest in protecting public health and defending public health, and they actually have no business responding to any pu public health issue because punishment is not a public health strategy. It doesn't work. We actually, there, there's just no evidence to support that these statutes have resulted in a lower number of HIV diagnoses or less risky behavior. So I think it's important to, to, to unpack that some, some of the things that we've learned are we're continuing to see enforcement in some of these states that have not fully adopted some of the principles that I think are really important to be built into a reform. Because we do want, you know, th these crimes are really out of lockstep with the longstanding legal tradition that you only prosecute people for these serious felony crimes if they if, if a prosecutor can prove that someone acted with an intent, with a conscious desire to harm somebody else. And the harm here being uh, the transmission of a manageable chronic disease. But nonetheless, we, we do think it's important to, to make these laws require that prosecutors have to prove an intent to transmit. Like some of the changes, for example, in California, where we saw a pretty high threshold for, um, for, for prosecution there with the intent provision. We also want to make sure that uh, the conduct that's criminalized actually has a scientific basis in being a, a known route uh, for HIV transmission. And finally, that prosecutors should have to actually prove that, that HIV transmission occurred. Because as, as Brad was saying, with some of the enforcement data that the Williams Institute has gotten their hands on, they've overwhelmingly shown that that's not the case, that actually most of these convictions didn't require proof at all that HIV actually transmitted. Um, I think an important thing also to learn in these, these years since, uh, you know, the 1994 of, of Texas's law, all the way up to, to the new um, bill that was just signed by the governor in Nevada a few months ago, I think it's important to, to you know, learn from the lesson that, that Robert and Brad are, are speaking about. This is about systems, about socially controlling and policing identity. Uh, and, and, and socially controlling and policing and incarcerating largely, uh, mostly black people and sex workers and people who inject drugs and, and, and the poor. And it's not just about a criminal justice system uh, that confronts people living with HIV as vectors for disease and denies them their humanity and their dignity. It's about the public health and health system too. Um, you know, CDC, without any buy-in or consultation from networks and people living with HIV, announced in 2017 a molecular HIV surveillance program where every state was forced to submit, uh, you know, HIV testing-related data up to CDC so they can map the, the sexual and social networks of people living with HIV to, to guide public health action. But sadly, this data has not been, you know, uh, obtained in a way where the informed consent of people living with HIV has been centered. Um, and we also have a lot of concerns because in some states like Ohio, for example, there are provisions in the law that actually force health department staff to cooperate in criminal prosecutions against people living with HIV. And Missouri was also one of those states that had a provision like that until this, this year's reform act, thankfully scrubbed that provision that, that um, required the health department staff cooperate in criminal prosecutions against people living with HIV. This is not about addressing a public health crisis. This is about confronting human beings and dehumanizing them. And I think you know it's important when we look to 2022 and think about the, the many reforms that still need to happen that we, we fully need to, to change these laws by requiring intent, proof of transmission, and that the conduct actually carried a scientific risk. But we need to maintain communications with law enforcement departments to continue to educate them because it, some, something, you know, the cases we're seeing in, in Iowa are a good example of what happens when we change the law, but do not continue to communicate with law enforcement and prosecutors that HIV is a manageable, treatable condition, that 
uh, that, you know, it is not a death sentence anymore. And, and you know, we should be uh, protecting the dignity and humanity of people living with HIV if we really cared about public health. Right, definitely. Thank you for that. And, um, as well, too, thank you for the comment, Jerrica Hall, that this is an amazing opportunity for me to learn all of this information. So thank you all. Um, yes, yeah, so just thank you all for, for bringing this information to us. And also, I want to direct this question to you, Robert, for um, someone who may not necessarily be involved in the political process or know um, laws, um, but maybe a person, um, you know, living with HIV or knows someone that's been affected or incarcerated by these laws. Um, how can we use our voices and the power of uh, storytelling and um, narratives, you know, to in influence change in some of these laws um, as somebody who has been affected by this? Oh, well, I think it's, it's definitely important for people to share their stories. We need to continue to tell our stories. Um, because the narrative has already gone out, you know, either years before some people may have contracted HIV, like for those of us today, I know we have a lot of long-term survivors, but even for myself, the narrative was already out there that I was a, that I'm a criminal, that I'm a dangerous person, um, even before I ever contracted HIV and, and even faced prosecution. So I say that to say I'm very passionate about storytelling as a strategy, um, because uh, people need to know, people who are not black and brown need to know what those what we are experiencing, uh, because they're not going to talk about it. And when they, whenever other you know people that are in power talk about it, it's always about protecting the public, protecting people. But they're not really hearing and understanding the stories of people that are, are going through it. And so. Um, you know, they may not want to hear about a sex worker. They may not want to hear about an injecting drug user. They may not even want to hear about gay people, but we have to keep telling our stories. You know, I, I kind of had an issue with telling stories to legislators because honestly, they don't really care. <laughs> they really don't. Because my mm -hmm. concern is what I'm seeing and things that I've seen is that when someone go to a legislator and say, oh, I'm having this issue around HIV or what have you, the first thing that a legislator wants to do is create a law. They want to create a criminal law to deter the, their, their rise or increase um, in rates in, as it relates to sexually transmitted diseases. That is not the answer. Legislators are not understanding social determinants of health. They're not even looking at that. And they actually think that it's, it's going to work uh, creating a, a criminal law to uh, stop the transmission of diseases. It's just not going to work. And I've seen that. Um, over and over again when it comes to, to legislators. So, so I, although I say I, you know, I'm against telling a story to a legislator, but there will be a legislator that will hear the story and really see the injustice and recognize the need. Uh, so, so, but overall, we need to continue to tell our story because we, our voices need to be heard and not silenced. And we have had enough of people making decisions on our behalf you know, we see a lot of that going on right now in the country as it relates to abortion and women and their bodies. Uh, I am tired of people not living with HIV, making decisions for people living with HIV. And I'm tired of white people who are creating laws against black and brown people and enforcing them. I'm tired of that. So we need to continue to raise our voice and speak up and share our stories. Yes, thank you. And side note, I'll always uh, tell you, I remember uh, the first time I remember you telling your story about HIV criminalization now, maybe six, seven years ago. And thankful as well, CMP, for being able to do this work, because that as well is how I found out about a lot of HIV criminalization and um, doing this work. So definitely thank you for, for that as well. Um, but I want to know, how can we support um, folks that are currently incarcerated under these laws um, from where we sit? Um, can you answer that for me, Brad? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll start. I, and I think um, I think it's extremely important to remember that um, hundreds uh, across the country, thousands of people have been arrested for these laws. Uh, thousands are incarcerated uh, right now uh, uh, because of these laws, uh, and thousands um, uh, maybe post-incarcerated. Uh, but as Amir was saying, kind of um, you know saddled with a felony conviction, saddled with everything else that comes uh, with having a felony or being incarcerated in this country. And and um, 
And so when we talk about reform, that's about changing a law. And I think we have a lot of, and, and that's exciting. And we have a lot of people interested on um, uh, not picking on CHLP, but you have an issue map and you get to color the state a different color. That's not the end of the story, right? That's just like, that's great. Um, but I'll say two things about that. One is uh, back to kind of what kind of reform we need. You know, power finds a way. And, and so I, I, I think unless... You, you kind of need complete repeal and like we put in Nevada, something that says, and you can't use any other part of the criminal justice system to go after this to really shut this down. I was looking at some data earlier today from Virginia where they had a felony that required intent to transmit and then they changed that to a misdemeanor for non-disclosure of HIV. And what happened is the the cases just kept right on going and and um there was no decrease they just now had two different laws to charge people against instead of one and so i, I it you know it's like whack-a-mole it's like this is part of a system unless you really keep everything uh, unless you really kind of button down all the hatches the prosecutions are going to continue and so i and i think that's really important the other thing is um there's there are you know there are people who are incarcerated uh, who need our assistance. There are people who are post-incarcerated. There's people who need expungements, even if you, even if you've had uh, the repeal of the law. Um, uh, and all of that work needs to be attended to as well. Um, you know, I know, and I know Mir and others work on people. You finish your prison sentence, and then somebody decides you're still a threat uh, to the rest of the public, and you get put in civil confinement. Basically, you know forever like you know there's there's um uh, stories of folks who've been in there for for decades um without the process of, of criminal procedure and so i think it's it's important that we do the reform but that it's important um there's a, there's more funding right now going towards those reform efforts there also needs to be funding going towards the people that are actually impacted and making sure they have the resources they need to kind of uh, recover from the impacts of these laws to the extent possible yes thank you for that and as well just want to point out with uh dorian gray alexander in the chat that says free nushan so definitely want to um lift him up as well um, and bring in a, another question as well from you, Dorian. Um, do you think a law like Texas's current bounty uh, deputizing on abortion could be passed and used to find people living with HIV someday? For anyone that wants to take it. I, I, <laughs> I'm just wowed by having thought about that, but wow, that's an interesting mm -hmm. question, uh, Dorian. Uh, I'll just add this is is that this has gotten a lot of attention, this kind of vigilante of powering citizens to go after other sentences because of this law. It It is being used by the right, by conservatives across a number of issues, including LGBTQ issues, whether it's trans people using the bathroom or things being taught in school. So I, I think it's important. It's important to remember this is a strategy the right is using right in that right now to get around kind of legal review of the courts um, and uh, and 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 yes, there's no there's no bounds on where they can use that strategy. So um, I I do think not only is it possible, we've already seen other areas uh, where this is happening. Yes, definitely. Thank you for that question. I never thought of, I never thought about that either. So I definitely appreciate that. Um, so in the interest of remaining hopeful for me um, and thinking of how we can work toward this in the future, um, what would a 2022, hopefully, you know, COVID. Okay, we're going to skip past that. Hopefully with COVID. 2022 agenda would look like for our movement. And I just want to start with you. Um, Amir, I know you touched on it just a little bit uh, before. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Well, but I, I'm happy to to add to it. You know, I, I think it's it's been remarkable to see this movement grow before my eyes. Um, and I know uh, there are a lot of folks um, who've been doing this much longer than I have uh, who feel the same way. So I, you know. I'm I'm hopeful that next year we can keep the momentum going. I mean, this year, Illinois repealed its law uh, 
Virginia, Missouri, and Nevada changed their laws. We saw bills moving across the country. New Jersey introduced legislation backed by the Hyacinth Foundation. I just want to give a shout out just in case anyone from New Jersey's here. Uh, there was a bill moving in Georgia that got pretty far. And I, I probably, you know, I know CMP is based in Atlanta and um, we might have a lot of folks from Georgia listening in. And, you know, Georgia is one of these states that has an HIV specific crime, carries a potential 10 year sentence. It's also a state where we've seen general prosecutions against people living with HIV. It's a state that the Williams Institute has analyzed enforcement data showing that it's overwhelmingly black women and men who are enforced, um, you know, consistent with trends that we've been uncovering. Uh, and, and, you know, the, I, I think the, the, the Georgia bill was an exciting one. It, 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 to, it repealed five, I think, of the seven provisions in Georgia's HIV criminal law and made it so, it, you know, the conduct had to have posed a scientific, you know, risk of transmission that, uh, that um, and that someone uh, acted with intent, I believe, as well. Um, but it, it did, you know, uh, cling on to a felony punishment. And I, I, I think maybe connecting back with some of the other earlier questions, because, you know, as we are hopeful and look to the future, we have to remember where we've come from. And it's important not to trivialize. I mean, I guess we've been saying this all, all evening, but we cannot trivialize a felony. We cannot trivialize felonies, felony level punishment. Um, I think for a lot of folks who who might not have, you know, been as engaged in criminal legal reform and people who might have not actually been directly affected by the criminal punishment system and the criminal legal system, they don't understand. And they think, well, maybe it's a three-year sentence. Maybe it's a five-year sentence. That's not so bad. Um, and, you know, I can just rest, you know, rest assured that, 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 that trivializing that kind of time inside actually does active damage to this movement. Um, we need to be cross-movement organizing and working, uh, you know, across movements, um, you know, with, with sex workers and, and racial justice advocates to, to make sure that, you know, whatever we're fighting for next year to change these laws, we're not gonna leave anyone behind. And we're gonna make sure, you know, that especially the people who are most likely to be uh, arrested and convicted are centered, that we continue to hear their stories, as, as Robert said. Um, and, and, you know, I think something that I've heard Brad say that I'd like to say is that this movement has a lot of different lanes, right? We have to change hearts and minds. We have to change the law and we have to build movements, right? I, did I get that right, Brad? <laughs> and <laughs> um, I think, you know, I'm hopeful that we can keep doing that. And, and I also just want to say that um, we we not lose sight of people who are who are currently inside, like Nishan Williams, who's been targeted by civil confinement, um, still in indefinite detention. Uh, you know, over eleven years after serving his maximum uh, criminal sentence. So we need to, I think, look forward and embrace some of these founding principles, the the positive justice project guiding principles, but also make sure that we're we're going back and 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 working to address how this system has unleashed so much violence and harm on people living with HIV and people living with viral hepatitis and, and, and other stigmatized diseases. Yes, thank you for that. Did anyone else wanna chime in? I just wanted to add, and, and Amir already touched on it in terms of racial justice approach to it. Um, you know, it's black and brown people that are definitely impacted and those are the people that need to be also in leadership. They need to be in the decision making um, regarding things that are impacting their their um, our their our community. Um, so I, I can't stress that enough. But that is something more that I would love to see. We have a lot of uh, black activists, uh, people living with HIV, who are have done extraordinary in their states. And it's just time that we uh, strengthen our our network and also get more visibility, um, since we are also experts and impacted by the issue. Yeah, and I'll just add to that. I mean, I, it's it's kind of echoing these points, but I, you know, I I think 
we as people with HIV, as, pe as people who have been impacted, should define what successful reform looks like. And, and for me, in every step of that process, that means putting people first. And so a reform effort is successful if after the policy goal is reached, you have a strong coalition who can work on other issues involving uh, the criminal system or involving health. If you, you resource and empower people who can work on not only that issue, but other issues. And if you live in a state with one of these laws, I encourage you to find your state coalition, get involved or get involved with the positive justice partners. I totally agree with Amir is is if you leave a felony in place, and, and I know a lot of people a lot of hard work into reform and there's still a felony in place, but if you leave that in place, um, you know, that's not that that can't be seen as successful reform. That's that's that might be a step forward, but it, it, just remember, like I said earlier, most people plead. And and if if you're gay, if if you're a person of color, if you're HIV positive, and your sex worker are accused of having sex without disclosing or sharing needles, are are you gonna go in front of a jury and and roll that die? So you're gonna you're gonna plead like if people plead, and if the felony is what you have to plead to, like it, it doesn't. I, it doesn't matter as much what the specific elements of a crime are in that context. And that's why we need the prosecutor education. And that's why we have to lower the penalty um, because, you know, in that Missouri data, people are pleading to a felony of transmitting HIV through donating blood, which if that had happened, it would have been a national news story. It did not happen. Um, but they were charged with that crime. They must have donated blood, and 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 the crime says, and you infected someone, and they pled to that, even though there's no way that 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 could have been proven up. And so, um, and, and I think the connection to other movements is important. I, I mean, so many of the people who are arrested and convicted are sex workers, and we can get rid of the enhancement for being HIV positive because you're a sex worker. But that, but we need to get rid of the criminalization of sex work altogether. We're kind of picking a scab off a, a huge problem, and that's what's really impacting our communities is the criminalization of sex work. And if we leave that in place, uh, um, that's going to continue. Um, and then I'll just wrap up with this, which is something Amir and others heard me say before: uh, is that is that we don't do this work for saints. Uh, we do this work for human beings who are going to mess up, who are not going to disclose, who are not going to use a condom, who are going to do drugs, who are going to do sex work. And if we write these laws so you can do all the perfect things and avoid penalty, that's not enough for all the reasons I've just said. Because uh, the truth is, uh, we have to pull we have to pull this out of the criminal justice system all together. And so writing these nice laws for really great behavior uh, doesn't, doesn't cut it. We have to repeal them outright. Yes, thank you all so much to think about. And there is a wealth of information uh, that we're dropping as well in the chat, um, the Georgia HIV Justice Coalition, as well as articles on the reckoning uh, with personal narratives as well. So it's a lot of information in the chat. And I'm so glad and thankful. I think we have time for just a few questions. I know um, you all are very busy, but I will try to um, get as many in as we can uh, before we have to wrap. Um, so I want to go back to um, a question I believe uh, Franklin asked um, earlier in the chat that there is an increasing trend of African countries contemplating implementing HIV criminalization laws. Um, how does international organizations uh, the WHO, the UN, the AU come to play to uh, prevent this? I will just add that there is a, a national, an international network. I mentioned it earlier at the top of this segment, the HIV Justice Network. Uh, if you go, if you type that in online, you will definitely find uh, the link to that network. And it it, it, it is a link that uh, encompasses all of the work that's being done all over the world. Uh, it's led by Edwin Bernard, and there's a host of other uh, advocates around the world that are doing ish, uh, uh, decriminalization work uh, around the world. And if you're interested in a particular country, you're you're most likely to find some information about that. We keep a, a national, a international database that scans the world in regards to um, these instances of HIV criminalization. And a lot of the organizations um, have that we listed here have uh, at least put out a statement uh, over the years in regards to their stance on HIV criminalization. 
Um, but I encourage you to go to the HIV Justice Network and there's a host of information there that will be able to answer all your questions. And I'm sorry I couldn't get BS more detail for the sake of time. But thank you, we definitely appreciate it. And the link as well is in the chat um, for it. And one last question uh, we have from Carrie Foote, open this up again to anyone um, that wants to answer, but how would you advise advocates in states like uh, mine, Indiana, where felonies are given for really minor things uh, so when we introduce a modernization bill um, with uh, MISD, it won't even get a hearing. Uh, so where the political culture is super red majority along with the harsh criminalization culture, uh, we may never change anything is we will only accept a MISD. Um, so how would you advise those in states like mine? And uh, Well, I know Carrie and she's amazing. And if you're in Indiana, <laughs> Indiana and uh, you don't know Carrie and you want to work on this issue, I totally suggest you uh, hook up with her. She's doing incredible work there um, and, and in a very difficult state. And I think all of us have to be humble who are coming from places like California and other places. And listen and again, going back to the people, listening to the people who are working on the ground. Um, and I, I, I think, look, I'll stand by what I said. I think leaving a felony in place is dangerous. I also think there are many goals and a reform effort and you know building power for the community is one of them education is one of them and then um you know if if you feel um you have to accept less than uh the the law you're looking for i think that's a hard decision because I, I think you only get one bite at this apple uh because uh most legislators even our friends just don't want to vote on it um they, they'd rather not have it up there so i think you have to think about all of those goals and then support the work with things that Amir was talking about with educational prosecutors um, uh, as well, if you leave a law in place that can still have a really negative impact on people. Yes. You, you know, Carrie, I, 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 you know, I know Carrie too, a real leader. I, you know, I agree with everything Brad just said. And it's a dynamic I'm familiar with because I'm working with advocates in Tennessee. I'm working with advocates in Arkansas. Uh, in Georgia, um, in, in states where there the political realities and stigma, uh, the stigma is 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 persistent. Um, I know that there's been a new 2021 stigma, HIV stigma in the United States uh, report just released, I think, by GLAD and the Southern AIDS Coalition, showing that you know lots of people are even afraid to to see a medical provider living with hiv and there are a lot of recommendations in that report uh i think useful ones like encouraging open dialogue between patients and providers about sexual health literacy and hiv literacy um you know so i i think as 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 movements build to, to bring the sexual health and HIV literacy up to speed with medical providers, with lawmakers and so on. I, I, I hope that maybe, you know, uh, we won't encounter lawmakers that are so reticent to embrace a misdemeanor and, you know, reducing um, this offense to a misdemeanor level, because I think, you know, the, the the, the harshness of the crime is actually one of the root issues, right? I mean, we're talking about conduct that might not even theoretically pose a risk of transmission that's that's punished as a felony. And I think that's that's pretty unacceptable and, and actually probably does a lot of public health damage, as I'm, I know um, Carrie knows. So, uh, you know, I do think, though, an, another piece of this that might share some encouraging news is that the sex work decrim movement is building. I mean, in Louisiana, Women with a Vision, shout out, you know, it has been organizing for years and introduced a bill. And I've heard from advocates there that even conservatives um, are, are kind of, you know, not shutting the door in, in these folks' faces, which is, which is important. Um, and, you know, so I think as the sex work decrim movement builds speed and, and, you know, same with these movements fighting against the brutality and and inhumanity of our criminal legal system, the, the just, you know, pure anti-blackness that's woven into the fabric of these systems. I'm hoping that lawmakers, you know, will 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 
entertain the possibility that we might be right about our bodies <laughs> and and we might be right about the accurate realities of of living with hiv um but you know as as Miriam kaba says hope is a discipline and um it's it's tough to be hopeful in this movement it takes you know these reforms take years and years but if we're not hopeful that something can change why why organize and mobilize together at all we have to be hopeful that things can change um i'm i'm not i don't know if that's helpful to carry into other folks working in states like indiana but um i've i've found that mariam kaba's words there are are you know a, a nurturing source can i say one more thing real quick it's like people should be so proud like a robert and mir and kind of um, of you yeah LGBT groups wouldn't touch this issue with a 10-foot pole like six or seven years ago. They would they would not get involved in it. When we first tried this in California, like we couldn't get any LGBT group to sponsor the bill. Um, the, the amount, the, the fact that people come out, that Robert's talked about, that CHLP has worked on this, has changed this to becoming an issue that that movement organizations, whether HIV or LGBT, now feel like is, is important to them. Um, and Robert was just at a ball with the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation, and there are stars there talking about this issue. And, th and that just is um, inconceivable such a short time ago. And these, and these hooks are getting rid of felonies, which is something that we have to offer more broadly and a high, against a highly, highly stigmatized, triply stigmatized group of people, we've gotten rid of felonies so it is possible. So I, I feel like the hope that we have to offer is that both in terms of how an issue is understood in terms of stigma and in terms of, of getting rid of felonies, like we've done that. And that's something we should feel really proud of and, and share with other movements. There's some hope for you. <laughs> Yes, definitely. And as you said, I am very proud of all the work that you three gentlemen are doing as we continue to the um, movement, but we do have to wrap up. I'm here, so I just want to um, allow you all time. Um, any closing remarks, again, uh, where we can find you to put your information back up. I'm here, so again, we will start with you, Amir, then Robert, then Brad, uh, to close us out. Thank you, Michael. Thank you to CNP for having me here. Um, so exciting to have Lil Nas X uh, give CMP a shout out um, at the fundraiser for the baby registry. That is so, so exciting. So happy for you. Um, uh, you know, closing remarks, please reach out to us at, you know, HIVLawandPolicy.org. Um, if you know people who are facing charges, who've been arrested, we have an HIV legal collaborative. We have relationships with attorneys on the ground in states who can so, you know, we can support uh, them with resources and strategy on litigation and defense. We've worked with um, defense attorneys before in cases and actually gotten um, some charges dismissed uh, in the past. So please reach out to the Center for HIV Law and Policy or CHLP, HIVLawandPolicy.org. And um, if, if you've been, you know, if this conversation has, has piqued your interest, you know, please learn about Nishan Williams. Please learn about it's freenushan.com and and just free Nishan. He's did his time and it's 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 he needs to come home um, here in my my state of New York. So that's that. Those are my closing remarks. And I would just uh, want to say that uh, people can follow me on Facebook. You can find me on on um, LinkedIn or Twitter or wherever, any of those, <laughs> Instagram, I've gotten messages on all of those. And so um, I'm happy to have some one-on-one -on -one discussions or even group discussions, uh, but please read something about HIV criminalization first <laughs> before we have the conversation. That way you have a little bit of background knowledge, but I'm happy to have those those one-on-one um, -on -one conversations to help go a, to go a little deeper with helping you understand some of the, the nuances of the issue because there, there are a lot, there's a lot there to discuss. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to connect with anybody to talk about this issue anytime. Yeah, and I'll just say same here. Uh, you can also find me online and and get involved. Like it's, it's, um, it's 
great work and there are great people doing this work and you saw some of that hopefully today and i would just say uh get involved people like carrie in indiana need you uh but that's true all across the country so thank you yes and to everyone that watched commented asked questions i am definitely thankful to you make sure to share this video we want to continue this conversation outside of facebook and your community groups with your friends so this video will be up and i believe on youtube um, on CNP TV. So definitely check out 2020's Roundtable. Also, we did touch on sex work in that um, as well. So valuable information in there. So much information here in the chat tonight. Um, follow us on all our social media at CNP Tribe. I am your host, Michael Ward. You can find me on all your social media and things like that. Tune in again to Revolutionary Health uh, for next month. So I will see you all back then. But as always, be good to yourself and be safe, wear your mask, wash your hands. Until next time, bye.